All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 128 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, and if you haven't already watched David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet documentary, then please do. Tissues at the ready, though, because not only is what Attenborough terms his witness statement, vital watching if we're to save ourselves from destruction, but it also feels a bit like he's saying goodbye. Sad face. It's a cheery note to start on. Yeah. (laughs) Hi, everyone. How's your week been? (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and if you saw that clip of Kate McKinnon from Saturday Night Live this weekend doing the rounds, then you'll get it if I say that I am absolutely there. We know this. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I should probably explain it. She was in a a sketch with Colin Jost, who is one of the the Weekend Report guys, where she was playing a doctor. And I have to say, it wasn't overtly funny as a sketch. Then Colin Jost starts laughing too much for something that's not funny and I couldn't work out what had happened but now with hindsight it's that Kate McKinnon had gone rogue and was no longer (laughs) following her script and he actually broke characters to say Kate are you okay and she just went no no I want to know who wins the election I want to know when I can go outside again I don't want to I don't I'm fed up of not knowing and yeah that's where I am he goes, are you okay? And she just goes, no, I'm clearly not. <laughs> just, just keeps squeaking the blood pressure thing. Squeaky, squeaky, squeaky. Yeah, it's too much, isn't it? It is too much. It is too much. Ugh. 
Anyway. Anyway, anyway, later on, I chat to Zimbabwean author Tsitsi Dangaremba, whose latest novel, This Mournable Body, has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and also who was recently arrested for taking part in a peaceful protest about government corruption. So there was a lot to talk about with Tsitsi. Yeah, sounds it. I speak to Westboro Baptist Church apostate and author of new book Unfollow, Megan Phelps Roper, about leaving her family and her religion behind and what the world can learn from her experience. And Mickey's put on her best fur. I'm smoking in bed and both of us are in the pointiest bras we can find as we watch all about Eve in this week's Rated or Dated. I've just got to say for the record, as much as it makes sense to channel Betty Davis right now, I would never, ever wear fur. There you go. There's an indication of where we are that you actually have to say that. Just for clarity, that was a joke. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to 2020. I'm Mickey Noonan. This is Hannah Dunleavy and we are doing our best to cope. Yeah. But first, the Prime Minister continues to mess with us delivering up-to-date news. Still, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Please send cat photos. I don't know how many cat photos would make any of this bearable how many do you reckon well i mean i've got about four thousand of my own cats so <laughs> it's gonna have to be higher than that just to clarify that you do mean you've got four thousand photos of your own cats rather than four thousand of your own cats because that is too many cats would i be falling into some sort of stereotype there discuss Let's head up to Scotland, which has just had its first full weekend of pub and restaurant closures across the central belt and early shutting times around the rest of the country since First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announced a 16-day circuit breaker in central Scotland to stop the spread of coronavirus. Now then, despite regular circuit breakers repeatedly being recommended as a realistic way to slow the virus by the science, there will be many who disagree with Sturgeon's approach for economy reasons, for mental health reasons, for conspiracy theory reasons, and because Mm. all methods remain so uncertain in efficacy that who the fuck knows? Although personally, I put most of my cash on the science here. So I asked a pal up in Scotland for his thoughts and for him to put a finger in the wind about those of the people around him. And he said, everyone is exhausted by it, but most people are accepting that it's probably necessary. I was already confident Stephen had nailed it, but he went on to add, without me asking, it does help when you have a sensible leader slash communicator in charge of your government. Ooh, Stephen, ouch. What's he saying about our Prime Minister? <laughs> well, hey, Yeah, there's the rub. Or looking at Westminster, a cowardly shit shower of rubs. Where Sturgeon is decisive, whether people like it or not, Boris Johnson continues his flapping about, blustering and obsession with the number three. Let me elaborate there. Those initial podium slogans, then hands face space, rethink, mm. reskill, reboot. And now England braces itself for the three tier system of restrictions based on infection levels. I'm not going to go into much detail there because, to be honest, it's all pretty sketchy. Oh, surprise. But thankfully, following Johnson protocol of never dealing with something immediately if it can be put off for a few days for no apparent reason, Mm. we will all find out what's actually going to happen when he addresses Parliament and later the nation at some point today, which is, as ever, Monday. I remain furious at whoever gave him our recording schedule. (laughs) Sorry, me and Boris were just chatting one day and I said, would it be helpful if you could know exactly how you can fuck us up? He said, send it to me in three days. (laughs) Is that when you went over to Italy? 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's when I was driving to Barnard Castle. So, yeah, you might well be better informed than I am now by the time you hear this. But given Westminster's past performances, there's absolutely room for doubt on that one. Anyway, ahead of tonight's big reveal, a spokesperson for Number 10 said, This is a critical juncture and it is absolutely vital that everyone follows the clear guidance we have set out to help contain the virus. I'm going to ask you, me, they're hoping the nation's too busy laughing at the notion will ever get clarity to notice any lack of clarity in what's about to be announced. But hey, right now, we don't notice. No, we don't. I'm just so fucking sick of, of stuff coming to us via leaks from the cabinet to the media. Just fucking announce stuff. Just announce it. Don't like say, oh, there's going to be big announcements coming up. Because as we've learned, people don't necessarily respond particularly well to that. And also, if it is a critical juncture and absolutely vital that everyone follows the guidance, give us the guidance instead of sort of trailing it. Like, this is a critical juncture... Vital that everyone follows guidance, dot, 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 coming soon. Just just give it us. If you've already got it, give it us. So while we're up in Scotland, let's talk about Margaret Ferrier, former SNP MP who was stripped of the whip and is now facing calls to resign after travelling to London from Scotland. Joan is up on my desk scratching at the picture frame. I can hear her. (laughs) Would you get down, please? (laughs) What an arsehole. Anyway... Former SNP MP who was stripped of the whip and is now facing calls to resign after travelling to London from Scotland while waiting for the results of a COVID test. (laughs) She did, Joan. Can you believe it? Joan cannot believe it. And then travelling back after discovering that she had actually tested positive. Joan, anything to say on this? Sturgeon is calling for her resignation as an MP, something Ferrier complains is, quote, hanging her out to dry. And I've not really got the time to go into the ins and outs of the case, but I wanted to mention it partly to counter accusations that people only care when Tories break the rules or that we only care when men break the rules. But mostly because an excuse she proffered over the weekend was so extraordinary, it cannot pass without comment. And I quote, COVID makes you do things out of character which is up there with Dominic Cummings I needed to drive to test my eyesight and that guy I covered in a court case saying he would never have driven drunk if he hadn't been so pissed (laughs) cannot argue with that logic oh wait yeah carry on I mean yes Covid does make you do out of character things like indirectly infect and kill people so I suppose she has a point (laughs) but Let's move swiftly on to the news from cinema chain Cineworld, which announced last week that it will be shutting all its cinemas until further notice. And just in case you're one of those people who don't go to big multiplexes but enjoy smaller arts venues, it's bad news for you too, as this includes the arts picture house chain, which Cineworld also owns and operates. Hmm. Around 5,500 staff are said to be affected by the decision. But wait... This is actually even shitter than it sounds. Great, brilliant. Yeah, because around a third of Cineworld venues are located in out-of-town leisure parks, meaning that the inevitable decline in visitors is bad news for Frankie and Benny's and any number of restaurant chains located on these sites. So where's the joke or the chink of light here? I'm sorry, I don't have one. Mickey, do you have any good news? 
thankfully I do indeed. And it's not even all about bears, although <laughs> obviously some of it is. So first up, a hearty congratulations to Bear747, who lived up to his jumbo moniker and took the Fat Bear Week crown, weighing in at a staggering £1,400. Wowzers. That is a meaty bear. A poor sign, er sign. That's actually more than I managed to pile on during lockdown. <laughs> Happy hibernation, pal. You have earned it. Talking of earning it, three cheers for Dr. Jennifer Doudner, a biochemist at UC Berkeley, and also French researcher Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier of Berlin's Max Planck Institute. Hip, hip, etc. But why? Well, because last week, Drs. Doudner and Charpentier won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, the first time in the prize's 119-year history that it's been won by women without them having to share it with a man. Hooray! Hooray! Doudna and Charpentier accepted the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for the development of powerful gene editing tool CRISPR-Cas9. That's CRISPR-Cas9. I know. It's, a, it's going to be the name of my firstborn, but luckily that's never going to happen. <laughs> it sounds like a code that you, for something that you're buying on QVC. Yeah, finally someone's remembered the password that lets me back into my Facebook account. <laughs> it's not, though. It's a technology that can rewrite DNA in cells. So CRISPR-Cas9 has already become one of the most widely used tools in the treatment and creation of therapeutics for hereditary diseases since its discovery in 2012 and has been likened to a pair of genetic scissors, allowing for tiny snippets of DNA to be removed and replaced. Dr. Doudna said, my greatest hope is that it's used for good to uncover new mysteries in biology and to benefit humankind. And I salute her optimism because the way this world's going, (laughs) who knows? But this is the good news section, Hannah. While we're on the subject of Nobel Prizes, the winner of the Peace Prize has also been announced as the World Food Programme, the world's largest humanitarian organisation dedicated to feeding the hungry. It was praised for... Quote, it's efforts to combat hunger and bettering conditions for peace in conflict affected areas by seeking to prevent. (laughs) Joan, don't lick the camera. (laughs) She's so involved this week. (laughs) By seeking to prevent the use of hunger as a weapon. Joan, blink twice if Hannah is using hunger as a weapon. (laughs) She's blinking. She's lying. I'm telling you, I fed her before I started this in an attempt to, yeah. In 2019, the World Food Programme provided assistance to approximately 100 million people in 88 countries who are victims of acute food insecurity and hunger, mostly due to war and armed conflict, although the pandemic has also created its own problems. Well done, those people, for their work and their prize. Yeah, well done indeed. Congratulations. If you've got any spare cat food, please do send it to Cambridge. (laughs) Joan is issuing many cries for help. (laughs) More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I don my reverse Scylla costume, because as ever, there's no surprise, surprise. In this week's No Shit Sherlock, a new report called Burnout Britain has revealed, and I use that word very loosely indeed, that women are bearing the brunt of COVID-related work stress. Give us your best surprise face, Hannah. That's pretty good. It's pretty good. As people do their jobs from home amid the pandemic, the length of the working day has steadily increased for everyone. Yet the report shows that women are 43% more likely to have increased their hours beyond a standard working week than men. 
Add to that the fact that the burden of childcare falls mostly on women's shoulders, even when both parents are working from home. And it is no surprise, surprise, again, that it's having a detrimental effect on the mental health of those women. Now, I chatted to Sam Smethers about this back in April. At the time, she was CEO of the Fawcett Society, and she had a lot to say about how the pandemic was already highlighting structural inequality, including who does what at home and how so much progress made in the last few decades looks to be in jeopardy. And indeed, April was when this survey was conducted. So I'm going to wager things haven't got better in the interim. Oh, to be surprised one of these days. Over to Joan. <laughs> oh, she's fucked off. Quick, let's try and do some other stuff while she's not here. <laughs> Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a, a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women. Thanks very much. Hello, I am joined on Zoom from Zimbabwe by author and filmmaker Sitsi Dangaremga. Sitsi, Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I've got to start by asking how you are because it has been quite the few months for you, hasn't it? Yes, it has. I'm okay though. The whole Booker Prize shortlisting has really helped to keep my spirits up. The other things that are happening with respect to my court case are things that are all in a good cause and so I'm doing all right. Thank you. You were arrested for taking part in a peaceful protest against government corruption, is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Some people from an organisation called the 31st July Movement had called for the demonstration and I thought it was a good idea. When I went, I wasn't only protesting against corruption, I was protesting against other things like constitutionalism, which is not followed here, and other forms of misgovernance. But yes, I did go out on the demonstration and I was arrested. That was in July. I had a hearing yesterday. That was the fourth time I appeared in court. The first time was on the 1st of August, after I'd been arrested on the 31st of July. And we had two more hearings, which did not go very far. And then fortunately yesterday, the magistrate was actually able to hear the initial issues. And are you okay, like mental health wise? Just are you are you doing all right? Because I mean, it was already quite a weird time. Yes, yes, I, I am doing all right. I think that when one is unable to do anything at all in a situation where obviously action is necessary, then that can be very frustrating. But I think that for those of us who find small ways to engage which don't endanger us too much, um, we do have the sense that at least we are contributing to some kind of progress, no matter how small. So I'm doing well, thank you. I'm getting so much support from within Zimbabwe, within the region, in the Southern African development community, the rest of the continent and the rest of the world. And of course, from the UK, especially through my publisher, Faber and the authors that Faber is able to reach out to it's really been wonderful oh that's really really good to know I know it's it's a big question but what is the political climate like in Zimbabwe right now the political climate in Zimbabwe is increasingly repressive 
there is an increasing clampdown on opposition parties and individual opposition politicians, and also on activists and any citizen who who expresses discontent uh, with the way that the country is governed. As far as I can see, there are no signs that this is going to change in the near future. I imagine there must have been lockdowns as well with COVID. Yes, we did have a COVID lockdown, which began several months ago, and we had several phases of it. Some of them were really um, quite strict. For example, we had a 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. curfew at one point. Wow, that is strict. Yes, it had to be reversed uh, in the courts. Many other things have happened under the guise of COVID. For example, changes in the transport system where private transport um, providers were no longer allowed to work and had to align themselves to the state transport provider generally a clampdown on meetings and association and it has been quite noticeable. Well we'll touch more on the political in a while because obviously that looms very large in This Mournable Body but let's talk about your latest novel This Mournable Body which as you mentioned earlier has been shortlisted for this year's Booker Prize. Congratulations. It's well deserved. It is an incredible story and we catch up with Tambu who readers might have first met in your 1988 book Nervous Conditions then again in 2006's The Book of Not. So you and Tambu have been through a lot together over a period of 30 years. What does she mean to you? Yes, uh, Tambu Tsai and I have been through a lot together. I'm just really happy that she was able to tell her story because at the end of Nervous Conditions, which is the first volume in the trilogy, she was full of hope. And then in the Book of Knots, we saw that that hope was not realised. None of the potential that she thought would be realized actually manifested she did go through rather a low phase in Zimbabwe it is difficult to see a positive future given the way the country has gone the economic decline and the increased political repression and people find it very difficult to speak out in that in under those circumstances people find it very difficult to speak out especially about their personal lives, which are just so fraught with hopelessness and despair and anxiety and all the other negative emotions and states that that can engender. And so I was really happy that uh, there was a way for this character to to speak about these things in this mournable body. Tambu is almost entirely lost to herself and from herself in this mournable body. And it's a feeling that you've heightened by using second person narrative. It, it makes it a hard read, a rewarding read, but a hard read. And I did wonder, is Tambu a reflection of Zimbabwe? I think that many people in Zimbabwe are going through the kinds of alienation that Tambu went through. And so to the extent that a nation is really the citizen's and not just the state apparatus, of course. then I would say, yes, uh, Tambutai can be seen as a reflection of Zimbabwe. But even when one looks at the state apparatus, my view is that the more repressive a state apparatus becomes and the more it abuses its citizens, 
the more alienated from the nation the state is also. And so even at the level of state, I would say that this mournable body is a metaphor for the whole country. Could you tell us a little bit about where we have found Tambudse and what she is up to in this mournable body? Because we've meeting her again and she's in her late 30s and it's at the end of the 1990s. Yeah, she is in her early middle age, approaching middle age when we meet her um, in this mournable body. And she has just thrown in a job which was fairly lucrative, not particularly in an advertising agency. And she did that because the white men who owned the agency, uh, Rhodesians, were stealing her copy and putting their name to it um, and not recognizing her. And she didn't get the remuneration that she deserved for it. So that was at the end of the Book of Knot. And for me, it was just to say that this was a moment that Tambudzai rebelled and tried to stand up for her rights. But the scope uh, in which one can rebel is really so constrained so that she ends up putting herself in the negative situation of being unemployed. And then she has to begin to reflect upon whether she had done the right thing and to try to build life up for herself. But because she is not as young as she once was, it is difficult to find employment. She doesn't have enough money to live in accommodation of her own. So she's living in a hostel and there's an age limit. And so she has to leave the hostel. And uh, it's downhill all the way from there until about two thirds of the way through the novel when she gets a job with one of her ex-schoolmates who was actually an advertising executive in the agency, also a white woman. She thinks that she's finally made it and all her hard work and perseverance has paid off. But that job comes with a price, and right at the end of the book, she has to decide whether or not she's willing to pay the price. Obviously, there's issues of race within there and issues of various different conflicts within Zimbabwe. The other thing that struck me was the place and the treatment of women in Zimbabwe, which is a massive theme throughout this mournable body. So Tambu faces ageism. Man, you made me feel super old. I'm in my 40s. She's in her mid-30s. And she is constantly like classed as some sort of anti. Domestic violence is rife. Her cousin plans to teach women about women's issues and mocked by her husband and not wholly understood by her students. Is this reflective of how Zimbabwe is and and is women's place in Zimbabwe changing for the better? I do think that the place of women in Zimbabwe is actually changing for the worse. And this is because of the economic decline and political repression. Whenever uh, a situation, a nation becomes more authoritarian and totalitarian, women always suffer. So there was a time when women thought that their situation in Zimbabwe was improving post-independence through until the early noughties. But um, now I do think that women begin to see that uh, the situation is not good at all. And of course, uh, in situations of stress and pressure, um, anxieties rise, mechanisms for coping are not always adequate. And that means that violence can erupt in personal relationships. And so women also are victims of that. Then of course, we have the lockdown 
the book was written before the lockdown, but today in Zimbabwe, we also see um, escalation in uh, domestic violence because mm -hmm. of the lockdown, people having to spend more time together and having to spend more time together when they cannot earn as much. They cannot go out to earn a living as they did before. So it's more time together under more pressure, which again leads to more violence. So I think women really are suffering increasingly at the present moment. It feels a lot like Tambu's reactions and, and the reactions of her mother as well to this violence that they are that they have committed against them is tempered by history like they, they don't really know how to react to it or how to imagine a world where it doesn't happen to them does that make sense absolutely yes that is true because uh, pre-colonial society was very traditional and very conservative uh, very patriarchal and of course there are elements of that in modern Zimbabwe and these elements of traditional patriarchy combine and intersect with elements of colonial patriarchy. So, and then there is the issue of race. So women in Zimbabwe are caught in this nexus where on the one hand, uh, one wants to emancipate oneself as a woman, if one can even conceive of it. Many cannot even conceive mm. of it. But at the same time, one is aware of other intersectionalities where men in Zimbabwe who are not elite and uh, who are not part of the um, well-off upper classes also are suffering from many of the issues such as poverty, race, lack of opportunities and this kind of thing. And this does temper the way women engage. I think we have not really developed a kind of conceptualization of women's emancipation in the country that is not oppositional to other groups that are marginalized, but that embraces them. And I think that is really very necessary uh, for us to do if we are to get the kind of emancipation of women that also embraces and supports the emancipation of other marginalized oppressed groups. Which is what your character, Anesu, am I saying that right? Nyasha, Nyasha, Nyasha. Oh, yeah, yeah she, that's what she's trying to do. She was my favorite character. I loved her. Oh, okay. <laughs> I loved her. There was a beautiful line and I've made a note of it because I just thought it was very telling about the situation you're describing in this mournable body, but also relates to I think pretty much all people who are struggling in all countries, and that is, Tambuze says she's not really got time for politics, and she says, you understand that people like you who are clawing their way forward do not have time for it. And I, th I think that is a global phenomenon, and that is why it's harder to change, because the people who need the change desperately don't have time to get involved with making that change happen, right? Absolutely. And we, we are experiencing that in Zimbabwe very much so. You know, when I was arrested, there was no water in the police station. So even drinking water meant you had to have someone come in and provide you with water. Right. There was no food for people like us who were arrested. So you had to have people come in with your food. So that meant you had to have someone at your service the whole day because if they brought you dinner, then they would have to go back and then be back the next morning with breakfast. And we didn't get to court on the Saturday until after lunch around two. 
So then they would have needed to come and bring you your your lunch as well. And so I realized that the ordinary person cannot possibly countenance the possibility of being arrested. It just doesn't work. No. I mean, and then public transport is almost at a standstill, so you have to pay for your transport. That's extra expenses going up and down. And so I really realized how the system is actually constructed to to make dissent as difficult as possible. It's a really sinister way of controlling people's actions. Indeed. I, I have begun to think increasingly about George Orwell since then. And we didn't see it coming. You know, one has the idea of of the justice system as a justice system. When one engages with it, one realizes that what I would think of as justice myself may not be what the system is delivering. (laughs) Exactly that, exactly that. And I do think, obviously, I can speak for the UK, you can speak for Zimbabwe, but I think it's a global thing, which just keeps people in their place. You know, the claim that class doesn't exist anymore is just utter nonsense, I think. Yes, I I agree with you. I think it's global, and I do try to to speak about the fact that Zimbabwe is a special case of a global situation. And I think it's really important for us to situate our struggles within broader context, because then it opens our minds, I think, to different ways of engaging. And even these kinds of conversations that we can have can be very helpful. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. Let's go back to the book the you of that second person narration throws the reader right into Tambuzi's character and it is at times almost unbearably uncomfortable being in her shoes was this deliberate on your part <laughs> i used the second person to actually get some distance <laughs> oh, right <laughs> i didn't have any distance <laughs> because the first two volumes were written in the first person that's nervous conditions and the book of not and so i had thought that i had to continue in the first person also just to make the trilogy cohesive in terms of voice and then when I started writing it and I realized what subject matter I had if I was going to write something that was authentic and useful in any way the enormity of it and the bleakness of it was overwhelming even to me right so I thought if I write this in the first person in a way that is authentic and I am having this feeling of being overwhelmed, what it, will the reader even want to read it? You know, And I felt that probably not. And so I felt that I had to get a little bit more distance. But then I thought that the third person was probably too much of a jump from the other two volumes. Mm-hmm. It would be difficult to present it, more difficult to present it as a cohesive trilogy. And so um, I thought about the second person, which people often use when speaking to each other, when talking about things where they don't really want to admit that they're talking about themselves. So I thought that Tambudzai could use that um, instead of the first person. So I tried it out, you know, because I'd had several uh, drafts in the first person and I could see that it just wasn't working. And so I tried that out in a section and I saw that it worked very well. And then it was really easy to to get the book right as far as I was concerned after that, yeah. 
I don't know, maybe I'd have to speak to someone else who's read it then because I actually found, as someone who reads a lot of novels, I found the second person narrative made me feel much more inside that character than the first person narrative because it felt like it was all... Because she's talking to herself a lot, so she it felt like I was talking to myself. It was <laughs> very clever but very disconcerting. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny kind of distance. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it is it is a distance that, that collapses distance at the same time. Mm. Very yeah. strange, yeah. yeah. I, I also find it strange like that, but it worked, so I'm happy. Yeah, you totally weirded me out. I liked it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, how does it feel to be shortlisted for the booker? It, it's absolutely amazing. I've been writing for over three decades and uh, mainly writing from Zimbabwe. I had a stint in Germany, but I was at film school there learning how to make films, so I didn't write much at that time. And I started writing again when I came back to Zimbabwe. We don't have much of an industry here. So my career just kind of potted on. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe this is it. I should be grateful for it. And now <laughs> I'm nominated for uh, for the Booker Prize and shortlisted. And, and it's huge. It really is amazing. I just feel very grateful that, that I have this because it's given me so much energy and renewed hope for my work and for life in general you know at the end of three and a half decades just about so um yes it's been life-changing for me internally and I hope that it will prove to be life-changing externally also yeah everything crossed can I ask about your filmmaking hat as well that obviously you wear how easy or difficult is it right now to make the films that you would like to make? Well, uh, to be honest, it's been impossible for me to make the films that I would like to make. I did some filmmaking in Zimbabwe in the 1980s and 1990s, but this was for a, a company called Media for Development Trust out of the United States, and it was run by an American man and his wife. They did what we called at the time development films, which took all all the development issues like women's rights and HIV and and things like that and made films out of them. My first experience with him and some other filmmaking that I'd done also within the development context made me think that I could use films to tell stories in film from my own perspective. That's why I applied to go to film school. Mm -hmm. When I was at film school, I had the opportunity to to study the theory of film. And that's when I was able to put my discomfort with with what I had been doing and the way these development films were made into, into words. And it was basically that these development films, because they engage with problems like people who don't have women's rights, people who have HIV and so forth, simply were portraying to us Zimbabweans and elsewhere on the continent a problematic narrative of ourselves. So they were problematizing our existence Mm -hmm. and there was nothing aspirational. There was nothing that was telling us this is the best you can be. We were always told you are in this awful state. I had wanted to make films that are aspirational and I haven't been able to do that beyond one short film, which I made in the early noughties, which was quite successful. Freeing the screen is uh, something that it uh, takes a lot more than freeing the page. 
you know when you yeah. want to write you can sit down and just put something down but you really need quite a lot of resources to make a film and especially to make a good one i'm still writing i've got about a drawer full of scripts in there so i'm hoping that once the breakthrough comes at least i'll have several projects that i can put on the table at once well everything cross that that happens i can't let you go without asking if we're going to hear anything more from tambu in the future no we're not going to hear any more from tambu in the future <laughs> you know i could i actually know what happened to her but i just feel that she has said the essentials of her time i'm actually working on other things now um in terms of uh, literature and prose yeah where can people find out more about what you're up to are you on social media or anything like that i'm on twitter thank you so so much for chatting to me it's been a real pleasure thank you so much i appreciate that you gave me this platform and the conversation thank you I'm joined by the magic of Zoom from beautiful South Dakota by Megan Phelps Roper, Westboro Baptist Church apostate and author of the memoir Unfollow, available now in paperback from all good bookshops. It tells the story of her time as part of what's been described as America's most hated family. What led her to say, and these are very much her own words, this is bullshit, and what life has been like outside the church. It's an absolutely cracking read. I advise everyone to do it. Thank you very much for joining us, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. For people in the UK, you're probably best known from the series of documentaries made on Westboro Baptist Church by Louis Theroux. Although in America, your family made hundreds of appearances on television, including some very high profile shows. In your book, you describe your relationship with the press as symbiotic. And as a member of the media myself, I'd like to start by asking what you think we could learn from the Westboro Baptist Church circus about how to report on extremist groups. Man, um, so I have a friend, Graham Wood. He teaches at Yale and he writes for The Atlantic and he writes about, he's written a lot about ISIS. He wrote a book called The Way of the Strangers about ISIS. And I was talking to him about this relationship that Westboro had with the media one day a few years ago. And he talked about, when he writes about ISIS, the importance of, he described it as writing in multiple registers. And it's this idea of, it's very easy to look at these extremist groups and to only see them from the perspective that we currently have, right? It's, it's easy to see the, you know, the very inflammatory things that they say and do and to be provoked by that and therefore to almost to not see them as clearly as we could if we tried to understand them from their own perspective. I think his way of writing about ISIS, and you know, it's something that I also tried to do in my own writing about Westboro, I tried to write in such a way that Westboro would see themselves in it, that they would not feel like they were being caricatured. And that there is a lot of value in doing that, not because you're trying to platform their ideas or to, you know, give them credence, but to really see them accurately and therefore to to be able to try to address what you're actually seeing, what's actually happening. I think that's how you help people find a way out of it. You have to be able to understand where they're actually coming from if you're going to try to help them find a way out of it and to help other people not fall prey to the ideas, the destructive ideas that groups like Westboro are propagating. You dedicate your book to your parents, which I have to say made me want to read it even more than I already did because I think it signaled that what this book was going to contain was something that's actually missing in quite a lot of dialogue, which is nuance. That dedication was obviously very personal to you, but it also has the potential to to be political. And I wondered, you know, growing up the way you've grown up 
and speaking out the way you do now, is it possible for you to ever sort of separate the personal and the political? That's an excellent question. I, I do think it's possible. So for instance, when I wrote that dedication, I was writing it to my parents. I write in the book, I, guess, I think I do. <laughs> I think it's still in there. <laughs> We've done a lot of revising. We did a lot of revising on that book. When I left, the day that I left, my cousin JL, who I was very close to, essentially told me that the only way that I was going to be able to live in the world would be to completely disown my family, to essentially make things up about them, to show that I have really changed, you know, that this that this would be necessary for me, that nobody would allow me to move on from the mm -hmm. church unless I completely disowned isn't the right word. It's disavowed in every way and to to only speak bad things about them. And I I couldn't do that. I refused to do that because that would require dishonesty from me. And it's not something I could do. She may have been right. I think that there are some people who really wanted me to say horrible things about my mm. family. And that would have been a political response, right? For me to have, yeah. to have changed those things. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it is possible to separate the two. It seems like for me, at least these days, the political requires you to kind of reduce people to sometimes their worst characteristics mm -hmm. and, and to reduce people to those caricatures. It was people's refusal to do that to me while I was a member of Westboro that changed my life. And you can even see like by looking at the personal, by humanizing people, that you can actually have a much greater likelihood of accomplishing the, the political changes that you're looking for. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you talk there about leaving. I mean, the parts of the book that relay your departure from the church are almost unbearably sad. And I think your story is interesting because I think it poses a question, especially in this sort of fractious times that we, we live in now. Would I be brave enough? Am I that person? Because we all think we are a certain person and I'm not sure that we, we are. And actually, in truth, you were the person least likely, weren't you? You were the, the girl that everyone was surprised by. Why was it you that left and why of the people that have left, is it you that has seen the opportunity to, to use it as a positive experience and try and apply your your lessons you've learned to the rest of us? I think about, I mean, the question about why, why me? Why did I leave? I, I do not believe, I've thought about this a lot, and I don't believe that there is anything really particularly different about me. I think that I, or special is what the word I was looking for. I don't think there's anything special about me among the members of the church. I think that I responded in a very human way to people who treated me like a human being. People who recognized that to come at me with a kind of hostility that, you know, they recognized how, how much it put people off at Westboro, for Westboro to go out and attack people and then to have people attack us in return, it didn't change anything. It was just this endless feedback cycle of hostility and, and, and controversy that never actually moved the needle for anybody inside or outside the church. It was just this kind of cycle. So when people toned that down and, and treated me with, with compassion, you know, I, I found this, I, this concept in psychology. This was after I left. I've become very interested in, in psychology. <laughs> you no, she may not be surprised. <laughs> but one of the, uh, it's called non-complementary behavior. And the idea is that humans are wired for a complementary behavior. We are wired to respond in kind. So when people come at us with hostility, we respond, you know, defensively or, you know, attacking back. But to do the opposite, like when somebody comes at you with hostility to, to be kind, to be gentle in return, it's a very difficult thing to do. But it, it has the effect of, you know, flipping the script, if you will, right? Mm. So, so when somebody is treating you nicely, like it, it also is difficult to be a jerk to them. So when those people treated me that way, it, it just, 
it, it opened the conversation and in opening the conversation and really illuminating what each side actually believed, we were able to find, you know, common ground. And for, for my, my interlocutors, they were people who were able to find these internal inconsistencies. And that was the opening for me. I think that, you know, I was very lucky. I just happened to be the person who, you know, was representing Westboro on Twitter in that moment. Since, since I've talked about how, you know, the role of Twitter in my change of heart and mind, Mm -hmm. Westboro has become a lot more um, closed on Twitter. So when I was there, it was a very like free flowing conversation. Um, I had a little look this morning, actually, and an awful lot of their accounts are suspended. That is true. There have mm. been several of them suspended. And the ones that aren't suspended don't spend nearly the time that I did in engaging with individual people. And actually, in other words, actually having back and forth conversations. Yeah. You know, Westboro, even while I was there, they would say, you know, this should be a one way conversation. You know, we have nothing to learn from these people. But yeah, it was a new thing for me. And so it, 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 there was just so much about it that was unexpected that I was un, I was unprepared for the kindness um, yeah. that I experienced there. Well, it, it's funny because I rewatched the Louis Theroux documentary last night and what sort of became clear to me having read your book and and watching it again with a bit of sort of distance from the first time I I watched it when it was just oh my god these people is that actually a lot of the people who confronted you I would say they were angry but I'd say actually an awful lot of them were really frustrated and frustration ultimately leads to anger doesn't it it's like an avenue yeah because they just were hitting a brick wall that you there was yes. no chink of light to, to get through yes. to you right but that was the thing that was different on twitter was that you know <laughs> i learned pretty quickly because of the way people treated me again I, i've talked about this before so forgive me if you've if you've heard this before but there were just several things about twitter that changed the nature of the conversation the first was the character limit so i couldn't throw in those i mean so you saw louis documentaries and those early ones i mean you can see all the personal insults like have a salad like you know just ad hominem attacks I, I couldn't fit them in on twitter and then i realized that when i even when i did fit them in when i did make a point to insult somebody you know it's this immediate feedback loop where i could see you know, the person. So when first we're talking about this theological point that I believe is so important and the only hope for mankind. And now we're talking about this person saying, you know, you don't know me and being super defensive. And we're now it's like this playground insults mm. rather than this important conversation. So I stopped doing it. I learned how to talk to people because of Twitter. It showed me all the things that didn't work about how we were talking to people. And it changed so much about how I engaged. And it's really funny because most people look at Twitter and see that Cedars is horrible. Um, uh, well, I've got, <laughs> I have got questions about that later, I have to say. Yeah. yeah. I yes. mean, I think that you are the only example in the world of someone who was de-radicalized by Twitter. But that, that again, is a whole different conversation. And yes, you can hear the rest of that conversation about Twitter and about how it is affecting the standard of debate in the world in this week's Coming Chops, where you can also hear Megan and I talking about what it was like growing up in the Westboro Baptist Church, what it's like to look back now at those Louis Theroux documentaries and see herself holding those terribly offensive signs, how she's come to terms with that. Well, all sorts of things. I had a great conversation with Megan. That will be available on Sunday. Welcome to Rated or Dated. It was Dunleavy's turn to pick. Hannah Dunleavy, what did you have us watching? This week we watched All About Eve, which is 70 years old this month. 
Just to be clear, when we say that, we are always going by the UK release date, just so people know. I'm nodding sagely. Mm. Written and directed by Joseph L. Markowitz, starring Betty Davis, Anne Baxter, Celeste Holm and Thelma Ritter, and some men, but I'm naming those four women specifically because it means I can segue into the fun fact that this is the first and only time four women were nominated for acting awards in a single film. It was a box office success, 15 Oscar nominations, including six wins, including Best Film. It's generally regarded as one of the best films of all time and was one of the first 50 films placed in the US Library of Congress's film registry. It's also, fun fact, one of the first appearances on screen of Marilyn Monroe. It tells the story of an assistant who rises above the famous person they are assisting. And that storyline has had great sort of cultural impact in all sorts of satires, pastiches, including, as always, a Simpsons episode. This one is all about Lisa when Lisa starts to work for Krusty the Clown. It also inspired the 80s folk slash rock slash pop band all about Eve. I'll go through the plot really quickly. Margot Channing, an ageing actress, and by that I mean she's over 40, <laughs> uh, played by... No, she's the... only 40. <laughs> yes. Well, she's over 40. She's 40 in three months or something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, She exactly. actually says. Played by Betty Davis. Into her world comes Eve Harrington, who is an ambitious young woman who is found outside the theatre by a friend of hers. And I have to say, not to brag, but as a person who knows famous people and has sometimes gone through the back door to meet them inside their dressing room and has, sorry, (laughs) actually encountered mega fans who've asked me to give them things or to hand them things or to tell them things or to maybe me tell them how you get in that door. I cannot think of a single friend of mine who would be delighted if I turned up in their changing room with, with a young, ambitious actress. And in fairness to Margot, she isn't delighted at first. She is furious. Yeah, but she does also continue to be friends with the person who invited what is essentially a stalker (laughs) into her changing room. So, yes, that's essentially the plot that the two of them then are sort of pitted in some sort of competition against each other, etc, etc. That's enough of me talking, but I will say I fucking loved it. Mickey, you? I I fucking loved it. It was amazing. I'm kind of cross with myself for never watching it before, but delighted that I'd saved it. And I just, yeah, I thought it was brilliant. It's fast paced, even though it's two and a half hours long, nearly. Mm. It just flies by. I was sad when it ended. It's very, very funny from like, Oh, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. My notebook is about 95% just really funny lines that I wrote down. It's actually based on a book by someone called Mary Orr. And she doesn't get credit for that. I'm not going to suggest that's to do with sexism because I don't know. It might have been quite common that the person who wrote the book didn't get credit for it. But all credit to Joseph L. Markowitz for his script. And he actually really early makes a point in it in which he describes... Because what happens in this film, just briefly, is that it has a voiceover, but the voiceover changes of who's telling the story at certain parts, which I enjoyed and is really clever. But early on... The story is is being told by one of the... Who is telling the story at the start? He's a waspish theatre critic. That's it. The crit- and he says, the director and author, their job is merely to build a tower so people can applaud a light flashing on the top of it. I really love the idea that Markowitz is saying, you know, what the fuck? Why does everyone get so excited about actors? 
But yes, this script is fucking dazzling. It's so funny. And it's super fresh. Doesn't it feel really fresh? There's something in it that Thelma Ritter's character says. Oh, I love her. And she's... Do you know what, though? I really kind of want it to be remade because I really want to see Frances McDormand in that role. I think she would be amazing. There's a bit where she gets asked a question by Margot and she says, do you want an argument or an answer? And that feels like a really 21st century Twitter comeback. There's a great bit with Marilyn Monroe's in it where somebody thinks that she might bore someone. And Marilyn Monroe said, you won't bore him, honey. You won't even get a chance to speak. It's brilliant. And there's another bit where where they're talking about, because I want to talk about Margot's boyfriend, because I think that's an interesting plot. But Margot's boyfriend and her decide to get married. And Margot says, are you still going to come to the theatre every night then? And he says, I'm going to come often enough to keep open the franchise. (laughs) Which is, again, really (laughs) fucking funny. Yeah, I loved it. Also, fun fact, that is Betty Davis's real-life husband. Who... A huge amount of the plot is made of the fact that he is eight years younger than her. Yeah. Which is, you know, I suppose possibly representative of what it was like at the time or certainly what it was like in Hollywood. And also what it's like now. It's way more normal for older men to be with younger women. But what I really found refreshing about this is when Eve makes a pass at him, something that he describes as an incomplete forward pass, which is fucking, again, hilarious. He doesn't go with it and he says no thank you and he sticks with Margot and he marries her and I think a lesser film would have A. made him tempted by Eve and B. found a way to excuse it. Yeah I guess we do see that with the playwright but I agree with you I think it's interesting as well Margot's approach to ageing isn't She's not driven mad by it. She's not sad by it. She just wants someone to write a part that is for a woman yeah. of her age, which I think Alan is Bennett. incredible. Yeah, she needs <laughs> Alan Bennett. She hasn't got Alan Bennett. I think her discussion of womanhood, I mean, what a way to find out that you're not a woman, Hannah. Sorry yeah, exactly. I've, I've written that. <laughs> I've written, it's actually a really great scene, but at the end of the day, I'm not a woman by the definition of, of what she says. Classic Bette Davis showcase for her acting in that. Yeah, I, I made a note of it. Can I read it out? Obviously, yeah. I won't deliver it quite as well as Betty Davis, but, you know, brace yourselves. It's a funny business, a woman's career. The things you drop on your way up the ladder so you can move faster, you forget you need them again when you get back to being a woman. It's one career all females have in common, whether we like it or not, being a woman. Sooner or later, we've got to work at it, no matter how many other careers we've had or wanted. Do you know what, though? I think that was probably true at the time she said it. Yeah, I think it's true for a lot of women now. Yeah, you're right, because it it it's, it came out at almost exactly the same time as Sunset Boulevard, which has similar-ish themes, but it's, it's about ageing in a more proactive way. She is telling people she's got older. It's not the other way around. Mm. Nobody tells her she's too old for it. So you're right. They just want to write the same shit, but her to continue to play a 20-year-old. And she's like, yeah. I just haven't got it in me to play a 20-year-old anymore. I'm 40. Why can't you write me a nice normal play where a woman of my age just shoots her husband? I think is one of the lines that she says. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I found another bit that's really funny. When Eve says that she's going to try and get on in the theatre by, quote, trying to be modest. 
And uh, DeWitt says to her, oh, what a revolutionary approach to this. <laughs> <laughs> so as we're talking about Eve, our titular Eve, who is Anne Baxter, and there's a theory out there that the reason that Betty Davis didn't win an Oscar for this is because the vote was split because they were both up for best actress. Yes, that does and- happen. Talking of Frances McDormand, Frances McDormand and uh, Kate Hudson were both nominated in the same category for Almost Famous. And yeah, they reckon if they'd only nominated one of them, that would have been the person who, yeah, who would have won. Yeah. I've got to say, I think Betty Davis absolutely outclasses Anne Baxter in every single scene. But part of that is the... It's it's not a flaw as such, but obviously Eve is conniving and manipulative, but she sells herself as this lost little girl who needs everyone's help and everyone falls for it. But it did it made me think actually that whenever this happens in a film or in some telly, I think the audience get it straight away that she's a, a douche and that she's yeah. out to get something. So whenever she's like winning people around, I was just going, How are you falling for this? Yeah. She's a terrible actress. She is a terrible actress yeah. at being convincing that she is a lost little lamb. I think she's terrible at that but also the question of how often she cries and people say well she was crying and you're like come on you work in the theater you must know other actresses you must know that there's a potential that she's acting yeah that that doesn't seem to cross anybody's mind at all it's very odd I, i do want to bring one thing up just because i read quite a lot about this last night and it seems to repeatedly come up the question that this film is homophobic because of the way it represents DeWitt and also Eve. Eve. And it says that they are both seen as predatory because they're gay. Now, what I've got to say is I didn't see any reference whatsoever to either of them actually being gay. And I think making the assumption that a guy who writes about theatre must be gay is possibly, I don't know, struck me as would be me being homophobic. So um, I'm, I don't know how to address any of those issues that I read anything about because I certainly see no relevance or see no indication that she's a lesbian given that she sleeps with different men in this. Yeah, I read about that as well. And I guess if you were looking for it, you could say DeWitt wants to own Eve so that he's got a, a cover that he can pretend to be heterosexual and that Eve is in love with Margot Channing, but she's not in love. She's in competition. So I think it fell down for me there as a theory. Um, I did dig out a review from 1950 by a theatre critic for The New Yorker. Hang on. And it had a lovely line about DeWitt. He won, I should say, he did actually win an Oscar. George Sanders, Mm. who plays DeWitt. Yes. So... (laughs) It says, with Miss Davis and Miss Baxter running in tandem through much of All About Eve, the gentlemen in the film have as hard a time making themselves conspicuous as male commuters at a white sail. Hmm, feminism. (laughs) Of them, I guess George Sanders comes nearest to encroaching upon the ladies. He's supposed to be a venomous drama critic, but I doubt whether any of the boys in the play reviewing line could ever behave as horridly as he does. Well, of course you're going to say that, mate. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And that was John McCartan back in 1950. This is the first time I've seen a black and white film in absolutely ages. And I just wanted to to mention (laughs) Betty Davis at the party. I really wanted to know what colour dress she was wearing. I felt like there was something in it that I thought, I bet that dress would be red. Yeah, but I thought I red. I but did you also that. shout pockets at the screen? Because I went, oh, pockets! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which was a delight. But then later, when she has that massive fight with them all in the theatre and she's on stage, 
She's dressed 100% like Margaret Thatcher. Is she in like a pretty tailored suit? She's in, in a tailored suit tailored with like a suit. white thing with like a placebo like thing going on here at the front and she's carrying her handbag throughout it. Well, I guess like Thatcher did sort of hark back to that traditional femininity. Yeah. yeah. But of course it's the other way around, isn't it? It's that Thatcher was dressing like Margot Channing rather than Bette Davis was dressing like, yeah. Yeah, given this is 1950. But there was something about this that I wished... It was colour. I think it would be gorgeous. It felt. It feels very rich, doesn't it? It feels like it would be really rich colours. Well, it really loves the theatre. Because the other thing that it's kind of railing against is the encroachment of, of Hollywood. Hollywood onto yeah. the arts and how, you know, all good actresses are going to be stolen from the stage and drawn away. The idea that theatres, you know, are vibrant buildings and colourful buildings and they've got lush curtains and all of that stuff. What I did want to say is that the end is both excellent and weird. And of course, that what happens, what this film says is, Eve, you know, you've got there. Now you've got to stay there. There'll be another generation coming after you. You too will age and more young people will come and on and on and on and on. Which is a, an excellent point that he's making. But how they make it is that Eve comes home and finds out someone's broken into her house. It's, it's mostly okay with it, which is really odd. Maybe, like, it was really hard to get an assistant back then. So you just had to wait till someone, like, stalked every show that you were in or just broke into your apartment. I don't know. Yeah. Do you think it's a feminist film? Um. Well, you know, I think probably yes, because everybody yeah. has their own agency in it. I mean, Margot is the star. And although her partner is also in the business, they only ever talk about Margot and Margot's career and Margot's life. Eve is entirely in control of her own life, essentially, until she kind of gets in hock to do it. But that's only because she's then caught up by the lies she tells if she hadn't put herself there then he wouldn't have been able to take her down if that makes sense mm-hmm. the female character who is the housewife Karen does put all of her life into her husband's work is the one that is shown as being in the most precarious and the most vulnerable position so yeah I feel like it is a feminist film and even though she is in that vulnerable precarious position and it does bite her a little bit she also, it's its revealed that he won't make a decision without her say-so. Hmm. Yeah, so I, I agree. I think, like, none of the women are pushovers. The only thing I would have liked that would have made it even more feminist is obviously Eve gets her comeuppance a little bit. And yeah. DeWitt doesn't. He gets away with being exactly the same type hmm. of character as she does, but with no payback. Because Apart even from that, though. Even Marilyn Monroe, who is in possibly the most precarious position of all, as Uh in she's a young ingenue who's just trying to break into the business, still runs her mouth about these boring old blokes that she's she's got to hang around with. Why do they always look like sad rabbits? (laughs) (laughs) It's a great line. Yeah, Sad Rabbit is a brilliant insult. She's so good in it. She's she's in it for like a millisecond, really, on on the scale of things. But she steals every scene she's in. She's great, and that is yeah. a lot of a lot of amazingly famous people. She's stealing those scenes from. You can see why, like, she caught people's eye. She's incredible. Yeah, yeah agreed. The one thing that that always about watching films pre about nineteen fifty five. Oh, actually, no, not even that. Probably nineteen sixties. It was still happening is that I don't understand why when men wanted to discuss something with women, they had to grab hold of them. 
Like, they always yeah, have to there's... grab onto them and say, but listen to me. Well, yeah, because there's that really weird scene in the theatre where Bill and Margot are arguing. And they're having a normal face-to-face conversation. Then suddenly he gets her by the collar and pins her to a bed and just sort yeah. of shouts in her face. And I'm like, mate, you've lost the argument now. It yeah. feels like you've lost the upper hand by pushing but there's always this physicality of mm. such a lazy shorthand. If you want to show that the man's actually in control of the situation, right, just show that he's in control of the situation. You don't have to show him physically restraining a woman yeah. in order that she listen to him. I agree with you. I agree with you. But that is the, not a flaw of All About Eve. That is a flaw of almost everything. A flaw of society. Yeah, a flaw of almost every film around that time that yeah. does happen. So rated or dated, Hannah? Absolutely rated. I can't. I yeah. can't believe that I didn't. I I'd never watched this before. Genuinely, I can't believe that I, I'd gone this far in my life without watching it. Yeah, yeah. loved it. Rated. So, what are we going to watch next week? We're going to watch some men, Hannah, because we've had enough women now, and uh, we're going to watch Kelly's Heroes, which is fifty years old this year. Something that I've also never seen. Well, let's see if that's a feminist film. Standard issue for all women.